On today's episode, we round up some other Dartmouth Political Times members to discuss college reopening, a recent SCOTUS ruling, and the new North Korean aggressions. The date is the 20th of June 2020, and today we're doing something a little bit different. So our guests today are Anshul, the president of DPT, and Ted, the former VP of Finance who's recently graduated. So guys, could you quickly introduce yourselves before we get stuck in? Uh, okay, I'm Anshul. I'm the president of DPT. Uh, I'm a 21, graduating with 22s. Uh, I'm a CS major in modified psychology and a theater minor. I am Ted. I am the former VP of finance slash treasurer of Dartmouth Political Times. I am a 20. I am a Gov major, Chinese minor and CS minor. And uh, yeah, member emeritus of DPT now, I guess. The first member emeritus that we've, got, we've had in this current generation. Yeah, but you still can't leave us, Ted, can you? Okay, so. I, I can't get away. <laughs> I can't get away. Y'all, y'all. Ted was also Ted was also president, uh, interim president for a while. He's just being humble. He was yes, yeah. very <laughs> integral to DPT and and uh, interim co-president. But yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think both Anshul and Ted have prepared some important news stories over the past few weeks that they'd like to walk us through. So Anshul, could you get us started, please? Sure. So one article that I was interested in was an article from Penn State, where essentially Penn State is reopening campus to undergrads um, and graduate students in the upcoming fall, which is obviously super important to college students. Um, Their approach is pretty interesting. They're going to have a mix between online classes and in-person instruction. And usually for most schools, Dartmouth is is an exception, you have uh, students in the fall go to campus, come back home for Thanksgiving, and then go back to campus for finals and the end of classes. What Penn is doing, Penn State is doing, is they're having initially in-person instruction, but instead of having kids come back after Thanksgiving, they're having the final exams be 100% online. So that supposedly would help like people from, would stop people from being like reinfected if the second wave comes. Um, and yeah, some people are already on campus even, um, some graduate students. That's what, yeah, that's pretty much what's happening. So as a Dartmouth student who has gone through um, a, and this is also open to you, Ted, as well, um, who has kind of gone through a quarter of online learning, do you believe that either the Penn Penn State model or the model that Dartmouth is going to come out with in the next week um, is sufficient to kind of give a college learning experience that you would find Um, helpful or essential? Um, And what would you want administrators to know after going through this online experience that might be helpful when making decisions about when to come back, a phased in approach, and just kind of how people are going to take the fall? Here's been my experience is that even the best online learning will just be fundamentally different than, than, you know, actual on in person in class because even if you manage to you know strap in your vr headset and get it as close to in the classroom as you can you're not going to be able to replicate the social relationship you're not going to be able to replicate the uh the network effects of having a boatload of really really smart people in the same room together and and spending all their time together now my concern with the pen model i mean so let me step that back. 
I can't really comment on what Dartmouth plans to do for the next three terms because none of us have seen it as far as I know, um, you know, with the possible exception of Allie and she's not here and she's NDA'd. So it's kind of like, yeah, I, 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 I do have concerns with the Penn model because, you know, people still got to come back and that's an opportunity to, to, uh, to create another wave of infections so like uh, yeah i'm kind of concerned with it on legal grounds or on like liability grounds on the other hand like i would want to be in college like i don't want to miss this so like or i wouldn't have wanted to miss this so it's kind of like i think a gap year is the way to go honestly i'm I'm be real <laughs> kind of pushing off of that um for students who are maybe thinking about taking a gap year um, or who have already decided to take a gap year, um, what do you think, or I guess, Ted, um, both for you and Anshul, of course, you can jump in. Um, how do you view the price of college, especially if tuition does not change as much? Um, does, do you think that the price of college will really reflect what students are going to get out of this new learning environment, be it a Penn State model in which it's a phased in that might lead to a near full capacity or a more hybrid online model, do you think that students are really going to get what they're paying for? Uh, I can answer it. I think it's absurd. I don't think that students should be told to pay full tuition at all. Like, there, I don't think there's any, like, I don't think there's anyone who would reasonably argue or could reasonably articulate why students would have just as much, you know, of an experience online than they would in classes. Like, everything is hard online. It's harder to you know, get to know your professors. It's harder to make connections and networking is really important in college for the future and for prospects of employment. It's harder to have a social experience. For a lot of people, college is the best time of their lives. So I don't think, honestly, I don't even think that private college has, like, I don't think the cost is justified anyway, um, even under normal circumstances. So the fact that <laughs> you're having kids pay that much is absurd, especially when you can get the same quality of learning literally for free from a lot of online colleges. Like MIT has open courseware. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, the cost of college is already out of control. And now you want to strip it of the actual, I mean, the academics are important. I would never like actually not actually like diss the academics. But the thing that really makes it worth $60,000 a year worth $200,000, $250,000 maybe over the entire course of the education is the fact that you're getting people together and developing relationships with profs, with other students, and Anshul's hit the nail on the head. It's like, now, the devil's advocate reasoning is that, you know, the college needs to maintain its cash flow and uh, they need to... Um, you know, keep paying teachers and upkeep facilities still and stuff. And I'm kind of like, okay, I have sympathies for that. But I mean, again, from a consumer's point of view, the cost is out of control and <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay for it. I wouldn't want to pay for it. Yeah. I'm sure I had one question about, um, so Correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, the logic behind Penn State's decision, decision is that is the assumption that the second wave will come later on. I mean, I'm just confused as to why, I mean, you'd make the decision to go back on campus so soon when 
it seems like if there were to be a second wave, it would probably happen sometime between now and I guess when Fort Term were to start. Am I wrong there? Um, no, I think I think that's right. I'm not sure when Penn State actually starts, but I know some colleges start. Yeah, it says in the article it starts on August 24th, which I guess is the end of summer. So maybe they're hoping that students will come to campus with a low potential rate of infectivity. But then when they go back, it's winter season. It's not the summer months anymore, uh, which potentially means that they're more susceptible to being infected. And that's why they think the second wave is going to happen then. So... So I guess it's a little bit of a moot point since we discussed uh, that both Ted has graduated, Anshul's taken a gap year, as I'm sure many people are thinking about. Um, but if you had advice for administrators both at Dartmouth and around the country about how to kind of either phase in or have students um, continue college in the fall, what is one thing that you would really want them to make sure that they keep in mind as they create these plans um, for reopening? Um, I think that, so if you look at other countries, right, if you look at like Korea, if you look at Taiwan, whether or not it's a country is kind of ambiguous. Uh, but if you look at a lot of those countries that have essentially governments that can afford to be more strict with their citizens, so like stricter contact tracing, things like that, those countries have done very, very well in terms of combating the coronavirus. Vietnam, for example, never had more than like a thousand cases or something, some absurdly low number like that. So I think the advantages that colleges have over virtually any other entity is that pretty much they can control, like <laughs> this is gonna sound kind of fascist or authoritarian, but they can pretty much control the way that people act. So they can institute strict contact tracing. They can have like, you know, they could have met, like forced quarantine on people like in Dick's house, which they already do for like the flu. So I think that colleges should not be afraid to be like authoritarian because there are people, even among our relatively young student body, we have people who are immunocompromised. Like currently I'm immunocompromised. I won't be when I go back, but currently I am. If I got Corona, I could be in serious trouble. There are people like professors who are super, super at risk because of they're, they're old. They're workers at Dartmouth. So I think if Dartmouth wants to be on campus, which I think it should, then I think it needs to not be afraid to, you know, offend some people and be strict. Cool. Um, with that, I think we can move on to Ted's first story. So Ted, what have you got for us? Right. So in this story, uh, this covers the events or the Supreme Court ruling that came out this week that discussed uh, whether LGBTQ persons can be fired on that base on the basis of their identity by companies or by whoever their employer is. And the findings of the court was very, very interesting in my opinion. The way in which the court found it and the breakdown of the justices was interesting. So first of all, even though the court is, is uh, five, four Republican versus Democrat appointees. So you expect them not to rule this way. But uh, Justice Gorsuch, uh, he actually uh, wrote with the majority of the court, and he actually wrote the majority opinion, which means that he was basically the one who was writing the doctrine or who was the uh, most median voter, as it were. And what he found was that you cannot discriminate on the basis of 
sex or gender, depending on how exactly the law interprets it. But if you say, for example, a man can can be married to a woman, but a man cannot be married, or a woman cannot be married to another woman, then that becomes a matter of sex discrimination because you're saying, oh, wait, it's different because of the employee's gender. There you go. And so I, I absolutely love this because it is an elegant, legally sound uh, uh, means of, it is an elegant and legally sound means of sort of threading this needle of saying, yes, this isn't exactly what the court or what the law uh, was as originally passed, but it's still what the law necessitates by implication and, you know, the whole, it's actually ethically just. And so something that you highlighted that I think a lot of people took away from this was this kind of surprise and maybe happiness that Gorsuch sat on the majority. He was, you know, sat on the more liberal side of the court. Um, and so that kind of created, as the article pointed out, this concept of trench warfare between Gorsuch on the majority and um, Kavanaugh, who was also another Trump appointee on um, the dissenting opinion. Um, so for people who are maybe not as much up in the Supreme Court politics, myself included, this seemed a little surprising. It seemed like you would just assume that they were going to toe the party line, always be on the more conservative part of the court. Um, so why or what should people take away from the fact that Gorsuch um, was on the majority and seems to kind of break from the Trump administration? Well, there are two, there are two sort of observations I have based on that. The first is that uh, when, when Gorsuch was appointed, uh, the way that he got appointed was the Senate under Mitch McConnell essentially refused to accept any Obama nominees because his predecessor, uh, Justice, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, uh, died during Obama's term, and the, and the Senate basically said, "No, we're not going to approve anyone until uh, a Republican maybe gets appoint or gets uh, elected to the presidency." Uh, and so that uh, extremely, um, shall we say, unfortunate decision led to an extremely qualified and moderate justice uh, named uh, Merrick Garland to not be appointed. And, it is, and, and Gorsuch is the one who now holds that position. Now, I don't think, there, I don't think it's sort of like this, this, you know, Gorsuch feels particular need to emulate what Garland would have wanted. I just think that Gorsuch and Garland are both moderates. Gorsuch is a conservative moderate and Garland is a liberal moderate, but my sense is that they are both moderates. And I don't know exactly what the logic behind that, behind appointing a a, um, a moderate was, but I would hazard a an wild guess that it was to make uh, make uh, Gorsuch's appointment sting a bit less and be a little bit less flagrantly unjust. Now, the other the other point I want to make is that uh, Conservative justices uh, since appointed since Scalia or possibly Thomas. Um, my my SCOTUS history isn't that great, but they tend to be slightly different than your mainline uh, Republican legislator or or ideologue because they tend to adhere to what's considered uh, 
quote-unquote textualism, which is this philosophy of, okay, the law is exactly what the text is and nothing more, nothing less. And if the text is written bad or if the text is written wrong, it doesn't matter because that's what the text is. And we can't, you know, interpret things because we don't actually know what the legislators were thinking, never mind that we can refer to their speeches. I don't particularly personally agree with textualism, but I will give the sole credit that is the same sole credit that I give to libertarians which is that it is at least internally consistent. And I think this is a case where uh, strict adherence to textualism turns out to actually be kind of liberal. Um, obviously, mainline conservatives didn't like that, but <laughs> I, I will give Gorsuch credit for having some level of ideological integrity. Yeah, to add to that, um, I think that one thing to understand about Gorsuch, I think, is that although his appointment was very politicized, following, as Ted said, the lack of confirmation for Merrick Garland, or lack of a vote even, Gorsuch was an exceptionally well-qualified justice. Like, even on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, I think he was on. But regardless, he was very well-liked. And under normal circumstances, if it was a Republican president, he would have been confirmed unanimously. People liked Neil Gorsuch, even though like, he, was just, he was just a normal conservative justice who was went to exceptional law school and was a very, 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 you know, like qualified person. Brett Kavanaugh was not quite as qualified. Uh, the American Bar Association has different levels of qualification. While qualified is the highest mark, that's the one Neil Gorsuch got. Brett Kavanaugh, even like a decade before his confirmation, was not at the highest level, which you would probably expect from a Supreme Court justice. And even in like 2007, uh, he was basically accused of like lying to the judiciary committee or some like some some form of perjury um so he he was controversial even before the whole like frat guy like sexual assault allegations came out so i i was like not super super surprised that gorsuch dissented because he you know he's he's relatively like well qualified i wasn't surprised that brett kavanaugh didn't dissent and also republican justice often can be very very maverick clarence thomas has joined in on liberal like relatively what we would call liberal opinions very much over the past couple of decades um and really the the ones who don't the one who doesn't really is sam alito who is pretty staunchly in the right-wing camp and so another part of gorsuch opinion um, which kind of reflects uh, broader the debate that has been occurring in the Supreme Court um, is this um, combine or this um, negotiation, I guess you could say, between these type of religious objections or freedom of religion um, and discrimination based on either being gay or transgender. Um, and in part of Gorsuch's majority opinion, he kind of caveats this discussion about preventing discrimination based off of being LGBTQ about religious objections. Um, so should we expect that this issue will continue in the future and that that his opinion might be the basis of more or continued discrimination based on being LGBTQ by religious or for religious reasons? So it's sort of a multi-part question. I think the, so, First things first is that his opinion almost explicitly states, I believe, and if it not explicitly states that this is a question of firing, not hiring. So in other words, 
you cannot be fired on the basis of your uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. But so, so if you get hired and then, it, you know, you come out, so nobody can fire you over that legally. Uh, but I mean, first let's be real in a lot of parts of the U S you can be fired for basically nothing. So <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a small potatoes protection in reality. And the other reason this is kind of less, less significant than we would expect is because it doesn't touch that hiring bit, which, you know, can be used to lock people out for basically, you know, whatever the employer thinks and using religion as a shield for, uh, you know, discrimination, frankly. So this doesn't touch that. And it's not out of the ordinary for the court to make narrow opinions or say like, hey, this is a significant thing, but like it's only has this specific uh, application. That's not unusual for the court, but I think it's just, it's reason for us to be, uh, uh, to temper our, our joy on this one. I think that, when it comes to the courts, first of all, I don't think that this is quite as big as people are making out to be. Like Ted said, it only covers firing. Um, and there are a lot of loopholes that lawyers use. It's what lawyers do. Uh, so we have yet to see how this will actually play out. So I think generally the courts, like it's, it's, very, it's very, you know, murky whether or not it actually leads to concrete action. Like if you look at, let's say another like, you know, press class, like African-Americans, right? When you had, you had Brown v. Board, and you had a bunch of cases like Brown v. Board that were super, super important in you know, striking down segregation. But then you also had the court basically strip people of their Fourth Amendment right against, uh, to protecting against searches and seizures, which has led to like, policies like stop and frisk being able to be implemented, which has led to like, you know, or being arrests for marijuana, for illegal drugs, for even like police brutality. It's, helped, it's really helped police brutality. So I don't necessarily think that this is like a huge step forward for the LGBT community. Um, we've yet to see this, like this specific court and th this uh, set of justices. We've yet to see what they do in their entirety. Just because Gorsuch like supported, you know, uh, LGBT people here doesn't mean he's going to do it in future things, especially because his rationale was not LGBT people deserve rights. His rationale was that we shouldn't have gender discrimination. So I think there should be tempered happiness for this. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we're coming to the end of the time, but I think we can do one more story. So Anshul, I think you've got one more for us. Okay. So basically what happened is North Korea bombed like a South Korean liaison office. Um, but I just basically want to talk about like North Korea in the context of coronavirus, North Korea generally. Um, and people are like getting very, very upset over this because basically what they're saying is that North Korea, like this, this just destroys any hope of peace, right? I don't necessarily think that's true, but well, just background, I guess. Uh, North and South Korea have had, are currently technically in a state of war. Like the Korean war never officially ended. So there has, there's been kind of like a ceasefire um, and they haven't like attacked each other, obviously. But, and this is the first real attack in, in a while. But there's still like escalation. North Korea has like had a lot of threats, obviously, to nuke South Korea. 
um, South Korea had, has been developing like anti like anti uh, nuclear like missile craft to protect against that. There's it's basically been an arms race there. Um, but yeah, they they just took this <laughs> office. Uh, it's been basically the article says that it's been a symbol of the fragile relationship between North and South Korea. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> it's exactly how it sounds. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Honestly, um, with an issue like this, I think it's just ongoing. Like I was reading the article, it seems kind of like another episode in the ups and downs that we've seen. I mean, over the past decades, I guess. I mean, it's not it's not really anything new. But again, I'm speaking from a place of not knowing too much about this topic beyond the bare minimum. So, um, Madeline, do you have something to ask? Um, well, and I also would lo- would like to acknowledge that I have not been really keeping up on the politics of the region. Um, but I do know that the South Korea is an ally of the United States. Um, and so is this kind of escalation something that warrants a response from the United States? Is it just more of a regional conflict that seems like the United States doesn't need to be pull- it pulled into because of our alliance for South Korea? Um, or do you think that the United States is really going to respond or have they responded at all to this escalation by North Korea? Um, well, this just happened like a couple of days ago. So I don't think they've done anything concrete right now. And I don't think that Trump's first priority right now is going to be a country on the other side of the uh, of the world when literally just now he had a rally that he expected a million people <laughs> to attend and it was empty. It was empty. It was so funny. But um, I think that in the context, in, in like a normal situation, we would absolutely, absolutely be providing additional support to South Korea. I don't know what form that would take, but the U.S. for the past like couple decades has been really, really helping South Korea. Like the reason that South Korea doesn't have like a super strong military because if it wasn't for America, they would have this nuclear super, like not superpower, a nuclear power right on their border that is at war with them. So the reason that they they don't have like a super like military escalation is because the United States provides a lot of support. The United States provides funding. Um, like I said, the big thing, the big fear, right, is that North Korea could like nuke South Korea. Um, I think that's actually not, I mean, obviously nuclear weapons are a huge threat, but even if you look at just conventional warfare and, you know, strip North Korea of its nuclear capabilities, it still has the convention, the means to destroy Seoul conventionally with like normal missiles and things like that. Um, so I think that nuclear weapons for Seoul aren't as big of a deal. And if you talk to anyone who's like actually Korean, like for example, our editor in chief, Lex is Korean. And she's like, yeah, no, no Korean is like actually afraid of, of uh, North Korea. But yeah, we've, we've been providing uh, South Korea a lot of support. The, there was a new program institute a couple of years ago. It's called like Terminal High Altitude something. The acronym is yeah, T-H-A-A. Yeah, I was just about to say that, yeah. That, yeah. Which is, which would supposedly uh, launch a missile at a missile heading towards <laughs> South Korea and like basically disable it like that. So we've been providing, you know, support in a lot of ways. I think the important thing to remember, this is Ted, I think the important thing to remember with strategy regarding North Korea is that while their stated goal is Korean reunification, and I don't like, I think that they, both North and South think that Korean reunification would be nice. I think it's important to remember that a lot of the internal and external politics of North Korea are rooted in 
trying to maintain the, uh, you know, maintain the power of the existing regime. So to that extent, war doesn't, war doesn't serve the interest of supporting and encouraging the survival of the, the Kim dynasty or however you want to call it. So to that extent, I don't think that war in and of itself is a high risk right now from a strategic perspective. I think the real issue is just that there, there, there is a, it's, it's sort of a, a dance or, or a ritual of, you know, today it's this week we're going to be more uh, helpful and this week we're going to be less and we're going to be more bearish on the Korean peninsula and to without diminishing the particulars of any given situation on a strategic perspective, you know, it's that what everyone wants is peace, even North Korea. I agree with that. I think that uh, one way that one analogy that I've seen to allude to North Korea and really all these expansionist powers like China and Russia, they're like schoolyard bullies, right? Like the reason that they're, they're aggressive ever is like, basically insecurity at home. So they have this need to project nationalism, to project strength, to create this idea of like the other and this entity that they need to destroy, right? For Russia, it's like, for, or for the USSR, it's the United States. For North Korea, it's South Korea. And even now, like even in American politics, right? What does Trump run on? He runs on this idea of like, we need to stop China from doing things with coronavirus. We need to stop like Mexican immigrants. It's a very classic political tool. And North Korea right now is not at all stable. There's no official numbers for it because it's North Korea. But if coronavirus got into North Korea and almost certainly did, then there's almost no protection for that. I know the North Korean government is not going to like do like, like provide face masks to ordinary people, right? Um, on top of that, North Korea for a while has been declining. There are sanctions on them. So economically, they're kind of squeezed. Um, there's a lot of like South Korean cultural products have been airdropped into North Korea to like kind of like wake the North Korean people up. Um, I think it's called like Hallyu or the culture wave from South Korea that emanates around the world and it's infiltrated North Korea to the point where like North Koreans enjoy like K-pop and they see like the lives that people in South Korea are having. And they're like, why don't we have that? So there's a lot of, lot of instability in North Korea um, to the best of our knowledge, which admittedly isn't a lot, but I think, if I were to make a guess in my admittedly limited third year college student point of view, um, I would say that it's because North Korea is facing massive, massive instability at home. And that's why they're basically power projecting uh, so that they stir up nationalism, basically. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Ted Nunchal. Please listen again next week.